Okay, Jesse, last week's pastor wife has stirred a lot of discussion. What's the story this week? When a prominent psychologist takes a walk on the wild side, he gets in too deep with a teenage sex worker and her pimp boyfriend, leading to a fatal fallout. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about odd couples, strange arrangements, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are so excited, as always, to welcome and shout out a new set of wonderful patrons. Josie M. and Rose D. Joanna D. and Susan C. Moni S. and Michelle S. And finally, Elise H. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I'm really excited about today, Andy. This is a story that I found through looking up Lowell Caulfield's other works. We used him in that serial killer couple case where they were murdering the senior citizens. And I really appreciated his journalistic approach. He has a wonderful storytelling style. So I found another book of his called Masquerade, a true story of seduction, compulsion, and murder, which we'll be using today. And through his work, I also found another book on the case told by one of the survivors, A Life Divided by Dr. Jan Canty. So we will get more into Jan later. She's a phenomenal human being, a great psychologist, and a kick-ass writer. So what do you say we just jump right in today? I mean, after that intro, we kind of have to, right? (laughs) Yeah. On November 30th, 1983, 18-year-old Dawn Spence was working her usual midday shift doling out nooners for cash in the seedy cast corridor of Detroit. Dawn had looks, vitality, and smarts on her side. The brunette's hair fell to her shoulders, and her near-perfect skin showcased wide, sleepy chestnut eyes and full lips. She had once been on target to become her high school class's valedictorian before dropping out for a boyfriend and drugs. But on that cold November day in 1983, her addiction hadn't yet robbed her of her health and fresh face. Dawn clutched her full-length leather coat to her thin frame and approached a shiny black late-model Buick that had just pulled up in front of her. The window rolled down, revealing a man who looked to be in his early 40s, an academic sort. He squinted up at Dawn from behind thick glasses. Hi, you working? He asked her. Sure. Want to go out? She shot back. No, he didn't want to go out now, but he did want to go out later. Would she give him her phone number? Dawn sized him up. The man was wearing an overcoat over a sport coat over a sweater, no tie. He wasn't especially handsome, but he wasn't bad looking. He had a sideways mischievous grin that made him appear a little bit younger. 
And he certainly didn't seem like an undercover cop. While she paused, he handed her a $10 bill. Here, why don't you get yourself some lunch? I'm Al. Okay, then, she thought. I'm Dawn. She took the money and recited her phone number. Grinning even wider, the man called Al, told her he'd call her later, and drove off. She watched the Buick pull away before heading back to the apartment she shared with her 37-year-old boyfriend, pimp and protector, John Lucky Fry. John, she said as she burst through the door and launched right into the funny story of the trick who gave her money for nothing. As she chatted, all John heard was that his girlfriend had nothing to hand him but a $10 bill, and he was dope sick. Don saw his eyes flash with anger. But he's going to call me later. Screw later, Don. I'm sick now. Don't even bother taking off your coat. <laughs> Don clambered off the couch and back out the door, mentally estimating how many tricks she'd have to turn to get them both a fix. <sighs> the man named Dr. Alan Canty, though, would tell Don that he went by the name Dr. Alan Miller later that night when he did indeed meet up with her. All three lives would become inextricably linked from that moment on, further pulling into their web the unsuspecting wife who loved Alan and the mother who had gifted her son $500 for his milestone 50th birthday that day, 100 of which he would peel off to give to Dawn that very night without telling her exactly what he had been celebrating. Ugh. This case is tragic. It is absolutely tragic. Your sigh before saying his name really said a lot without saying a lot. <laughs> yeah, this one's a rough one, guys. If any of these five souls could have used a time machine to alter the course of history, it may very well have been this moment, Dr. Alan Canty's black Buick sidling up to a teenage Don Spence that they may have tried to disrupt Maybe Al could have foregone his birthday compulsion. Maybe Dawn could have left her violent boyfriend and gotten clean. And though unlikely, maybe even Lucky Fry could have turned his life around. But there are no time machines, and hindsight is twenty twenty. As Milan Kundura wrote in The Unbearable Lightness of Being, we can never know what to want because living only one life, we can neither compare it with our previous lives nor perfect it in our lives to come. Yeah, guys, I wrote this fully COVIDed up. So if this one gets very out there, it's because I was, I had COVID. I was taking care of my husband and two children who also had COVID and we had cabin fever this entire week. So you might hear the sound still in my voice as well. So please forgive me. Um, but I, I think you're gonna you're gonna like my COVID creativity. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So luckily one person in this sad sordid tale was in essence granted another life. Or a better way is to say that she fought for it and raised herself out of the ashes like a self-made phoenix. Others in this story are not so lucky. Today's story is one of strange compulsions, dangerous decisions, drug addiction, double lives, sex, and shocking violence. So there's a couple trigger warnings today. It is a, a pretty violent homicide. You know that I usually don't get too gritty with the details, but this one is pretty bad. There's a brief mention of suicide. I'll give you guys a warning on that one. And a lot of really intense drug use. It is going to be like train spotting level up here today. So let's begin by talking about the birthday boy, W. Allen Canty Jr. 
Alan, or Al, or Buster as he was called by his mother, was born on Thanksgiving Day, November 30th, 1933, the only child of Alan Canty Sr., a prominent forensic criminal psychologist and executive director of the Detroit Recorder's Court Psychiatric Clinic. Whoa. Yeah. This guy is serious. His wife, Gladys, was a devoted mother and volunteer who ran the PTA until Alan graduated, and then she ran for school board and was the president of the school board for many years. The trio were extremely close-knit, and while Gladys somewhat infantilized and babied her only child, Alan Sr. treated him like a small adult who was constantly disappointing him. Al Sr. was articulate, decisive, very well-respected but never displayed any kindness, empathy, or affection, which are all things that you kind of need to be a good parent. Yeah, I think for someone who is so high-functioning in their career and with something as intense as criminal psychology, I think that that can often be the case. Yeah, yes. there's there's compartmentalization. There is this blurring of the lines, and he absolutely had that blurring problem. Yeah. It seemed like Alan Younger would follow in his father's footsteps and he always had a hard time leaving his work at the door while his dad seemed to just have no problem bringing it home with him. He would come home, mix himself a drink. Gladys would put food on the table. Then he'd sit down with his inappropriately young son and wife and talk about pedophiles and sex workers and pimps and psychosexual serial killers, the people that he treated in his work, working at the clinic, but also he worked with the police department as a forensic psychiatrist as well. Yeah. I think that really planted a seed in young Alan's mind, not only to become a psychologist as well, but maybe it did give him a little bit of that compulsion to spend time in the cast corridor rubbing shoulders with drug addicts, sex workers, and career criminals. Yeah. And eventually, of course, landed him in a twisted love triangle with Don Spence and John Fry. So we don't know if, if that was what compelled him, but we do know from a very early age he was told probably inappropriate things. Too much, too much. Too much, too soon. Allen went to Wayne State University and majored in liberal arts. His first passion was acting, but his father convinced him that he needed something more secure to fall back on. And that thing became psychology, which, of course, made his father very, very happy. He earned his bachelor's at 26, his master's when he was 28 years old, and then a PhD when he was 35. Wow. Yeah. Along the way, he met and married his first wife, a professor at Wayne State, 10 years his senior, named Maggie. After nine years of marriage, the two split seemingly amicably. In the spring of 1972, Alan met a beautiful, bright young woman destined to become his second wife named Jan. Jan was adorable. In pictures, she has an almost elfin-like face. She has like the high cheekbones, a little turned up nose. She had very light auburn hair. In her wedding photos, she looks kind of like Sharon Tate-esque. Okay. Super cute. She was around 21 or so when she met Al. She was in her second year of school at Wayne State, and she had applied to be his secretary. Well, she ended up winning the job and his heart. Despite an 18-year age difference, Jan was very attracted to the doctor. 
in one picture of the time, he he looks like your friend Nelson Franklin, who's an actor, Andy. Oh, my God. That photo you sent me was so crazy. It's so crazy. So you guys, you would definitely recognize Nelson because he's been in a million TV shows. The one show that I remember him in, he played Jess's boyfriend, Robbie, on The New Girl. Yep. Yeah, he was in Veep. And more recently, he had a short role in Hacks. But yeah, he's been in so many things. I think he was in Blackish for a long time. Yeah, and he had a show like that he was a star of called Traffic Light that I watched for like one season, but I think it got canceled. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, Andy's friends with him. And in that one picture, he looks so much like him. He really does. Does he look like that normally or just in that one photo? It was mostly in that one picture. So I think it was when okay. he was younger because okay. obviously most of our story is going to take place when he's in his late 40s, very yeah. early 50s. But he did. He had a youthful look about him. When Dawn saw him, she thought he was like maybe 40 tops and he was actually 50 that very day. So he had a somewhat youthful look about him. He looks like a young Michael Caine as he gets older. Okay. Yeah, she was attracted to him, and the courtship occurred over long talks, long walks, hours-long meals, and it was very clear that something was there. She loved that he had this unwavering support of her grad school ambitions, and he had a very calming ability to talk her through moments of stress or wanting to give up when she had like a hard class or something. He he was the one who grounded her. Okay. And she also thought he was truly a gentleman. He was smart, kind, and he inspired her to be the best version of herself, which is, of course, always an admirable trait in a partner. That's what we we want. We want to find somebody who inspires us, doesn't tell us to be, but inspires us to be better. She also liked that he spoke really well of his ex-wife, despite the fact that they'd only been divorced for a couple of years at that point. She thought that that was the mark of a really good person if you can go through something like divorce and still treat that person with respect. Jan didn't love the age difference, mostly because she didn't want to be widowed in her 50s or 60s, but she didn't know any guys her own age with Alan's integrity or intelligence. So she figured 30 or 40 good years with him were definitely worth more than a lifetime with anyone else. Yep. Feel that. Yeah. So one day she proposed marriage over breakfast. She proposed and Alan happily accepted. The couple picked a date together and wed in a modest fall ceremony in front of a handful of guests. Jan and Alan eventually became quite the power couple in psychology with Jan earning a PhD in family therapy and psychology by 1978, there were two Dr. Candies in the house. <laughs> Go, Jan. Yeah, that's amazing. The beginning of their marriage was very, very happy. It was truly a honeymoon period. They didn't really have any plans to have children. She did, unfortunately, suffer a miscarriage at one point. But they were very aligned in their goals for their careers. They were dedicated to their patients. They had cats. I think they had four Siamese cats at one point. Whoa. Yeah. And they just really enjoyed their lives. They would go for long walks and have these rousing conversations and share reading material with each other. It was a very intellectual and comfortable marriage. She wrote in her book, life was good, steady, comfortable. I was very happy. However, when Jan decided to pursue and was accepted into a prestigious postdoctoral fellowship, she surpassed her older husband's educational level and was beginning to become more professionally successful than him. 
And that created a rift in the relationship because it was changing a dynamic that yep. he was very comfortable with. Jan later wrote, his unspoken need to be in control had been nullified. I wanted reciprocity. Al wanted dependency. I wanted autonomy. Al wanted subjugation. The moorings of our marriage had loosened and we began to quietly drift apart. It's just such a shame. It is such a shame. It was, he very much had this like my fair lady thing where he wanted an Eliza Doolittle and he wanted somebody to mentor and bring up and elevate. But the moment she was just as good as him, if not better, he didn't like it anymore. Yeah. But that doesn't have anything to do with her. That has to do with him. Ugh. No, that's his problem. Yeah. That is yeah. absolutely his problem. Like, it's not even like a marriage problem. It's his problem. <laughs> what he needs to work out in his own therapy yes. is yeah. why does he feel that way? But instead of working that out in therapy, he decided to, on his 50th birthday, go into the cast corridor and choose another person that he felt like would be a grateful project, a mentee, and somebody he could help and control. Unfortunately for everyone, he chose 18-year-old Don Spence to assume that role. So young. So young. So that November 30th, 1983, while Jan was recovering from a serious bout of mono at her parents' house in Arizona. Oh my God, I forgot about mono. I know. And she had it three times, which you're not, you're supposed to only be able to get it once. It's so bad. Yeah, I remember, like, I remember people being out of school for like a month because of fatigue from mono. Yeah, I was out of school for a month my senior year. I had to miss a play I was supposed to be in. Oh, and. I'm pretty sure that I was the only person ever who has gained weight having mono because <laughs> usually you're too tired and sick to eat. And instead, I was bored and I baked cakes. I would literally like bake a cake and eat the whole thing every day. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, Jan had a really hard time with mono. So eventually her doctors recommended that she go to Arizona where her parents lived because of the dry hot air rather than freezing cold, wet Detroit. So while she was gone, Dr. Alan Canty arranged his first date on his 50th birthday. He told Dawn that he was a medical doctor named Alan Miller, and she told him that she was doing sex work to pay for college. They were both lying. So this May-December duo with 32 years between them checked into an hourly motel and Alan asked for a half and half, which is a half oral sex and half intercourse. Ew. Yeah. The date was average. The sex ordinary, but the pay was much better than average. Afterwards, Al handed Dawn $100, which was much more than her usual $25 to $60 oh, rate. Oh, no. What? Why is she only charging that much? Well, I mean, it was, it's like three times that. Okay, cool, Yep, cool, cool. so we're it. in 83. Yeah. So that $100 was more like $300, yep. which is pretty good if you're just spending, you know, 20 minutes with somebody. They made plans to see one another again. And when she got home to John Fry, she crowed, I think I just found me a sugar daddy. And just like that, Alan Canty's future got a little bit darker. 
So let's talk about Dawn. Dawn Marie Spence was born on January 11th, 1965, some 30 plus years after her new sugar daddy and 19 after her current pimp boyfriend. She was the eldest of two girls born to Roy Jr. and Henrietta Sandy Spence and raised in a middle-class suburb of Harper Woods, Michigan. Her parents' relationship was very, very bad. The home was very chaotic. It was messy. No one was keeping up with the house. So it was just kind of chaos. Yeah. And both of her parents seemed to despise each other so much that they avoided coming home. So the girls didn't have anyone ever, really, or any parental supervision. So Dawn grew into a very naturally bright but troubled young woman. She began experimenting with smoking cigarettes as early as elementary school and graduated to marijuana, mescaline, and Valium by the age of 12. Jeez Louise. Which is just that stuff just messes up your mind at that age. I know. We've talked about that before. Uh, Like, it's fun to do things once your brain is developed. Yeah, and in very serious, like, moderation. (laughs) That's another thing is that I feel like when you're a young person like that, a child, you don't understand moderation. Like, you can't. No, of course not. How can you? Yeah. It sucks because the, like, education on all of that is so limited. It's like, it's the same as trying to tell kids to not have sex. It's either like sustenance or like you're you're crazy sexually active. Like there's no teaching on like moderation and like how to do things safe. You know, it's just come on, guys. Like let's let's evolve a little. Well, I think when it comes to drugs and kids, we can say total abstinence. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Under eighteen, let's just say no drugs for kids. But education in general on it. Yes. I think that there needs to be better education around sex and drugs and alcohol for sure. So around that time when she was only 12 years old, trigger warning here for suicide, Dawn attempted suicide by taking a pile of her mother's prescription medication, but was fortunately able to be revived. They don't know what it was. It just said in the books, like, I think it was a pile of different things. As a result, she was held in a psychiatric ward for six weeks. When she got out, the relationship between her parents had only worsened. Her now fully alcoholic father began beating her mother, and one incident resulted in Sandy needing 14 stitches to close a gash in her head. Oh, God. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, the couple soon divorced and Sandy ran off to Canada with a new man, leaving her daughters in her abusive alcoholic ex's care, which is not so great. She also encouraged Dawn as a young teenager to correspond with a prison inmate that she knew. What? Yeah. Her best friend growing up was a a girl named Dee. And she was like, Dawn, do not talk to this guy. It was really weird. She's like, it's very weird. It's gross that he's a grown man writing to you. You need to cut this off. And I guess she did Yeah. when her best friend pointed out how strange that was. Yeah, but if an adult is telling you to. Yeah, of course she didn't think anything was wrong with it. Her mom is telling her to do it. Yeah, yeah. These are not parents of the year. Let's just say that much. So despite all of this, Dawn managed to hold it together enough to earn amazing grades. She was on the honor roll. Like I said, she was destined to become the valedictorian. If she had stayed in school, they said she would have been the valedictorian. She managed the school bookstore. And unfortunately, 
a potent cocktail of having an abusive dad that she was trying to avoid drugs and boys completely upended any sort of dream of academic success or goal of college that she may have had. And she ended up dropping out two months shy of graduation. Wow. Yeah. By then, she was hooked up with a boyfriend named Donnie Carlton, who was a fellow dropout and drug user. And Donnie claimed that she dropped out and moved in with him to get away from her father who was hitting her. So it was after she started shacking up with Donnie that Dawn began her foray into sex work. It began when they were using drugs with some other people. And I guess people were commenting on how good looking Dawn was and if like she wanted to get some action. And he was like, you want to try it, babe? And it did not seem, at least from reports, that she was opposed. She was just like, I guess so. I guess it's free money. And she wasn't traumatized, or at least she was appearing not to be traumatized. She was compartmentalizing after her first couple experiences. So she thought, you know, what the hell not? This is easy drug money. So it was on the streets of the cast corridor working where Dawn caught the eye of an almost 20 years older pimp and career criminal named John Lucky Fry. John eventually lured Dawn away from Donnie by threatening to kill Donnie. He claimed, just like Donnie had claimed about Dawn's dad, that Don, that Donnie had been abusing her as well. So he was looking out for her. He's doing the better thing. So this poor girl, she did go willingly with John Fry, and she was out of the frying pan, wink, and into the fire. Not really, though, that staying with Donnie would have been much better because he, within a year, was convicted of murdering a church bookkeeper named Raymond Culver before he what? even turned 23. Yeah. And I could not find out any more details about that murder. Oh, I'm sure you dug. I did. And I didn't, I, there was nothing, there was like nothing of like how that went down. I don't even know why he was with a church bookkeeper. I have no idea. But yeah, so she does not have a great taste in men right now, which of course, I don't know how she would be when her parental examples and her father was such a piss poor example of a man. So Dawn's new pimp and boyfriend would lead her down an equally dark path. John Carl Fry was born on August 31st, 1946, on the Tennessee side of the Tennessee-Kentucky border. He was an incredibly screwed up kid from an incredibly screwed up family who grew into an impatient, arrogant, aggressive, and violent uh, psychopath. Jeez Louise. Yeah. When I talk about this stuff, it's like the mitigating factors, like they have at sentencing. It's kind of like wow, we can kind of understand where the behaviors we're about to talk about and the acts come from and why these people ended up where they are. But at the same time, it's important to remember that there are millions of people out there that come from very, very bad backgrounds who do wonderful things with their lives. So this is definitely a stack deck against them, but it did not mean they needed to turn into killers. So John's father, Pete, was a big rig truck driver who routinely beat John with his fists and other objects like belts and axe handles. His mother, Nell, did nothing to intervene. Thus, John learned that power and control were the most important things in life, and the way to get them was through violence. John started doing drugs at 13 and was hooked on heroin and cocaine by the age of 21. 
Oh, no. By his early 20s, he had already contracted hepatitis C and only stopped using during periods of incarceration, of which there were many. This is definitely one of those situations where nature and nurture collide to form a perfect psychopath. John felt no anxiety, no fear, no embarrassment, and he was known for his predatory stare, prolonged intense eye contact to prove his dominance. Was he a big dude? He was pretty big, yeah. So he was just shy of six feet tall, and he kind of looked like a redneck Hulk Hogan. Okay. Yeah. So he was like macho. He was big, macho. Everyone described him as barrel-chested, having the physique of a wrestler, broad, like very broad man. And I think he had in his younger days like a, like a reddish brown hair. But by the time our story takes place, I think he's bald. Or at least he was later on in the next couple years he goes completely bald. So yeah, it's a very wrestler look. John dropped out of high school because he hated being told what to do and was eventually drafted into the military, so he's really going to hate that. He ended up being sentenced for desertion after he took off when his mother died. The charge was eventually settled, and he was dishonorably discharged after everything. He would end up spending time in four prisons in three different states before hooking up with Dawn. His rap sheet included passing bad checks, conspiracy, larceny, counterfeiting, assault, and breaking and entering. John joined a motorcycle club in his 20s and got his nickname Lucky after surviving a massive beating from a rival gang. He had a charming array of prison tattoos, including LBT, living on borrowed time, FTW, which is not meaning for the win, folks. It means fuck the world. And everyone's favorite super gross white guy tattoo, white power. Are you serious? Yeah. I think he got that one in prison. This guy was racist, bad, misogynist, abusive, sexually assaulted. Like he clicked. He checks all the he boxes. He checks all the terrible boxes. Yep. Yeah. Shockingly, this winner convinced three women to marry him. Unshockingly, they all divorced him. John was the father to at least five children he did not see or support in any way at the time of this story. When he wasn't in prison, he was pimping out and beating his girlfriends, which is how he hooked up with our siren du jour, Don Spence. So we're back to Don and Alan's first date. Jan called her husband from Arizona that night at 11 p.m. because that was his actual birth time and was absolutely none the wiser that Al had set in motion events that would ultimately ruin all of their lives. Over the next 18 months, Jan would pick up on some pretty big red flags, but nothing that could have prepared her for the outcome of her husband's secret double life. Alan started visiting Dawn in the apartment that she shared with John and another woman named Cheryl, who was also a sex worker, as well as an ex-girlfriend of John's. And at first, they kind of tried to pretend that John was not her boyfriend and that they weren't living together, but it was pretty clear to Alan right away, and he didn't seem to really care. And he started visiting her six times a week, every day at lunch except for Sunday. Wow. And he always gave her $100, which, again, is the equivalent of $300 our time. 
So he, she was like, even at the very beginning, raking in like $1,800 a week. And for the most part, he would stay for 30 minutes to maybe 60 minutes tops. And very rarely sex was involved. A lot of times they would just chat, read the newspaper together. And he just started taking care of her. He bought her a car. He paid her rent. He paid for her utility bills. He bought them groceries. And Don and John were using all of this money for drugs. And they just started inventing more and more things for him to give them money for and found that he almost never said no. Alan told Don that she was smart. He wanted to set her up in an apartment and pay for her to go to college. And she really was. She, I mean, this is a tragic story because she had so much potential. He said he wanted to help her kick her drug habit, but all he did was enable it by forking over more and more money. Yep. Yeah, it was, it's just, how are you going to help her when you are giving her all of this? And he knew, I mean, later on in the story, he purchases the drugs for her himself. Yeah. yeah, like you could be paying for classes for her or... Or helping her get in a methadone clinic or, you know, there's ways you don't have to go cold turkey. There's different ways that he could have been supporting her. By Christmas, a mere four weeks after their first date, he was giving her close to a grand a week, which is three grand in today's money. And like I said, he wasn't even really getting sex. Don would later say that he got maybe a blowjob once a week if he was lucky. Alan later told his therapist, the only person who knew about his extramarital relationship, that he mostly abstained from sexual intercourse with Don because she had genital warts. <sighs> The time that they spent together was used for chatting, reading the newspaper, hanging out. And though he told Dawn that John was a bad influence and he wanted him out of her life, he also would shoot the shit with John when he was over there. And I think even like on a couple occasions, the two men went out for drinks together. John would later say that the doc, as they called him, seemed to have a fascination with the low lives of the cast corridor. And he was always trying to like act like he was tough or fit in or like be one of the gang in a way that was so laughable because he lived in Gross Point. Like there was no way that this highly educated guy was going to fit in with a bunch of people who had grown up very much struggling and came from a totally different socioeconomic background. But he would like kind of act like he was and they all kind of laughed at him behind his back. And he also told John that his late wife was also a sex worker who had passed away when she overdosed on drugs this was a complete fabrication. But they kind of knew it. They were like, I don't think that story is for real. But they didn't care because he's handing them a ton of money. So all they need to do is keep that gravy train going. Over Christmas 1983, Alan gave the couple $1,000 to travel to Tennessee to visit John's dad, Pete, with his younger brother, Jim, who everyone called Six for Six Pack, his nickname. Six... <laughs> was a sad story. He was married and had twins, or I think he had twins with his girlfriend, but he was addicted to angel dust and he was constantly hallucinating. Yeah. That's what happens when you do angel dust. So. A lot. Yeah. So their goal was to get him sober so he could take care of his family. 
And John's idea was that he was going to make everybody get sober and they would go to Tennessee for the Christmas holiday and everyone was going to get clean during that period and come back as better people. But unfortunately, that did not work out so well because, again, another trigger warning for suicide. On Christmas morning, the family found six in the back of the car that Alan had bought for Dawn. He had shot himself dead with his father's shotgun. Ugh. Yeah, blurred reality. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. John responded not so well to this. Obviously, he was shaken. So he stole his dad's car and took Don and Cheryl back to Detroit where they resumed using drugs again. So this was not going to be the moment to get clean after all. Now, Dawn had been shooting up in a specific area of her groin as kind of a last resort when the blood vessels in her arms and legs had collapsed. Oh, my God. Ow. Yeah. In January of 1984, she landed herself in the hospital with an untreated abscess in the groin where she was shooting up. They got so bad she could not even walk. Oh, my God, Jesse. This one's gross. The abscess had tunneled into her leg and was threatening her femoral artery. A surgical team had to obviously perform surgery on her, and amputation was almost necessary. The surgical team said that if she had waited even one more day, she would have likely bled to death. Dawn was released after 10 days of antibiotics and a packed wound and given instructions to take care of it and obviously not shoot up in that area. While she was in the hospital, Al had bought drugs for her and he had given them to John. What? Yep. Who fed them through her hospital IV. This is wow. Yeah. She was released on her 19th birthday. And Alan celebrated by buying her a suede coat. Unreal. Far from grateful, the hospital experience had made John and Don skeptical of Dr. Alan Miller. If he was a doctor, he certainly wasn't a medical doctor. No one at the hospital had seemed familiar with him. And he had visited Don, but when he was trying to like read her chart, he didn't seem like he understood exactly all of the jargon when they asked him questions. Why would he try to read his, her chart? He's a psychiatrist. Well, he told or them psychologist. He, was, he told them he was a medical doctor. That's hilarious. Yeah. So they're like, "You're a doc, doc. Like, tell us what's going on." And he's like, "Well, looks like uh, you gotta just say you're a doctor. Still, just be proud about what type of doctor you are." I know it's a very weird half lie. So they're like, we don't think that he's really a medical doctor. We also do not think that he was married or lost his wife in that way that he described. I'm sure there were probably so many other like tiny lies that happened throughout the like hangs at bars and stuff. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. I think he really liked getting one over on them or feeling like he was building this other identity. What ended up happening, though, was that John and one of his friends or one of his friends, I'm not sure exactly who, they tailed him and they found out that he was indeed not a medical doctor who had been widowed, but instead a very married psychologist with a gorgeous Tudor mansion in Ritzy Gross Point, which is a very nice suburb of Detroit. 
So Cheryl decided that she was over this like whole mess. She was like not having this anymore. And she ran away with one of her regular customers, a truck driver named Frank McMasters. And John and Don continued to put the screws to Alan for more and more money now that they knew his identity. Now they were going to be able to blackmail him as well because they knew who he was. Now, Alan made a really, really good living as a premier psychologist, but he was losing control of this situation and he definitely had already lost control of his finances. In April of 1984, Al told John that he had developed, quote, some strong feelings for Don and wanted to know how much money it would take to get John out of the picture. Al offered two grand and a plane ticket. John countered by saying, give me 10 grand and a plane ticket. And eventually... Yeah, two grand is like what he pays a grand a week. I know. Yeah. That's not like what? So they decided on $5,000 and a plane ticket will get John to take a hike. But before they were able to complete this transaction, Al suffered a psychiatric break that landed him in a mental hospital for six weeks of hospitalization. When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like somebody isn't showing up when they're supposed to. So you should talk to Bambi. Small businesses are a huge part of our life. In addition to Love Murder, I have two other small businesses, and HR is one of those things that has always seemed like it's for bigger companies. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, trainings, and feedback. I love that Bambi's HR managers are all U.S.-based experts who are really dedicated to the craft of HR. They add such a personal touch to a really important area of the business. They understand the nuances of HR for all 50 states, and businesses that work with Bambi are four times less likely to have a complaint filed against them. Best of all, HR managers can easily cost 80 grand a year, but Bambi starts at $99 a month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash lovemurder right now, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash lovemurder, Bambi.com slash lovemurder. Let's be honest, sex is better when everyone is enjoying themselves. That's why Dame Product designed Eva, the first hands-free vibrator for couples. Boost pleasure and connection for all with a little toy that won't get in the way. Use the exclusive code LOVEMURDER today for 15% off site-wide. Sharing pleasure during intimacy not only feels good in your body, but it can increase your emotional connection and decrease your stress levels. So you can take those good feelings with you throughout your day. But in order to get there, even the most sexually motivated couples can benefit from a strategically placed buzz. Enter Dame Products. Dame Products designed its hands-free toy, Eva, specifically for couples. It nestles close to the body and stays put with just a finger, so you and your partner can focus on intimacy. Designed to enhance, not distract from pleasure, Eva is your sex life's new best friend. So what are you waiting for? Try adding a toy into the mix and discover new layers of pleasure you can share, plus sex you'll look forward to. 
Jesse, I was so excited when my Dame order arrived. I got the Eva for couples, but also the air and the oil. Yeah, I ended up going back and getting a couple extra things too after my first order. I love that the company is exploring and innovating around toys and pleasure for us as individuals and for us as couples as well. Power up your pleasure with any of the toys from Dame Products. Go to dameproducts.com slash lovemurder today for 15% off site-wide. That's code LOVEMURDER to take 15% off your first order at dameproducts.com. Wife Jan had discovered him in his office incoherently babbling, and he was rushed to the hospital. At intake, he began crying, and he told Jan some of these following quotes, which at the time made zero sense to her, but then later would hit her with heartbreaking clarity. He said, they're coming, they're coming to take us all, they're coming to take the wicked and the evil, but they won't take the pure, the purest snow. I could have never done this to you. You're so pure and they're so bad. I've been such a bad, bad boy and you're so pure. Like Jan was just like, he's clearly not well. I don't know what he's saying. It's okay. You're okay, honey. And he said, I've been a bad, bad boy. The things I've done, my birthday, a fraud. You're so pure, as pure as the snow, a fraud. Everything I've done is a fraud. And oh, she's like, God. Uh, you're not bad. You know, you're confused and everything's okay. And and she was like trying to comfort her. But he was getting a little scary at that point. He was like yep. just repeating over and over as pure as snow. And then he started yelling and calling her mommy. You will take care of me. You're never going to leave me no matter what, mommy. No matter what I've done, you'll never leave me. Don't leave me, mommy. Don't leave me. Don't leave me. So she doesn't know how to cope with this. She wasn't even aware wow. that he had any mental health issues at that point. So this breakdown is coming out of left field for her. And she involved one of her best friends and her best friend's husband to help her to actually like transport him to the hospital and, and be involved. And when the husband of the best friend was alone with Al, he said something along the lines of, I betrayed Jan. I had sex with a sex worker on my birthday in the cast corridor. And later on, the husband said something to Jan, but she said, he said all this other crazy stuff too. I don't know what, like what's reality. I don't know if that's something that's true or not. And she did that's kind of sad that he only told him and not her because it leaves her in this like limbo trying to figure out and encrypt what he's saying. And she also didn't want to bring it up while he was still in the hospital or while his mental state was fragile. Of course. Yeah. So she's like, all these doubts were in her mind. It's horrible. It was completely horrible. It was a very scary situation. It was made even scarier when... She went to go to Al's office to make sure to cancel his appointments and check and make sure like his bills were being paid. And he ran the couple's finances 100%, mostly just because he had been already established and was paying the bills when she came into his life as an undergrad. And so they had just kept the arrangement. Obviously, she thought he's a very intelligent and capable human being. She had no reason to distrust him or think he was spending money on anything. He didn't even really drink alcohol that much. Like he had no vices other than he drank a lot of coffee. Yeah, but that's because he had other vices. He did. Yes. He, uh, yeah. he obviously <laughs> did. Yes. 
but she didn't know clearly. And so when she got into his office, she found piles of unpaid bills. She discovered through his checkbook that they were overdrawn and she was completely confused and shocked because he was working 12 hour days. I mean, he was leaving at seven in the morning and not coming home till 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday. So how is he working that hard and the bills aren't getting paid, she's thinking. So terrifying. Yeah. And she also found out about more lies. While he was being hospitalized, she found out that it wasn't his first hospitalization. It was actually his third. He had been hospitalized in 1951 following being drafted into the military. And then again in the early 70s, right before she met him, when he was going through his divorce, which she also found out he hadn't been divorced in 1968, like he said he had, but in 1972, the same year that she met him. Oh, my God. Which, again, is one of those weird things to lie about, which is lying about just a little bit. Because what's the difference? If you're, if he's it's just actually, lying to lie. It's lying to lie. Like, because if he's divorced in 1972 when she met him, who cares? He's like, I'm, I'm very recently divorced. Does it matter if it was four years or, you know, or not? He's officially divorced. So she's finding all of this out and starting to realize that her husband of just about 11 years at this point might be a stranger to her. And she has no idea what's really going on. But she wants to make sure that he gets healthy. That is her first job. She's like, I will figure out the finances. I'm going to get us out of this mess. But right now, all he needs to do is get well. Because she loved him. She loved him so much. It's her husband. While Alan was hospitalized, John and Dawn started panicking. So they had no idea where he went. He just disappeared. So at that point, they thought, okay, they pushed him too far in those negotiations. Oh, Dawn knew about the negotiations too? Yes. She was like totally in on it. They were never going to have John leave. They were basically going to play him and have John pretend to leave and take the money. Like all of this, they were just constantly looking for ways to scam Alan out of everything. And everything was never enough. They were not going to be happy until they had pried every last penny out of his pockets. So yeah, they were pleasantly surprised when Al made a return almost as soon as he got out of the hospital. So at this point, he is clearly just as addicted to Dawn and this lifestyle as she is to drugs. Yep. Because it doesn't make any sense why you'd have this huge wake-up call. He's clearly having a hard time balancing this double life, which is why he had a breakdown. And then he gets out and he should have been like, okay, I had a six-week break. I am like cold turkey now. I can go. But he went right back into the lion's den. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So John and Alan ended up finishing their $5,000 plane ticket deal. But like I said, John never left. He ended up moving his things into a neighbor's apartment and like would just like leave when Al came over. And then eventually he was like too high and cocky to even care. So like Al came in one day and he's like, huh, I never left. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? What is he going to do about it? Is he going to complain to the, the Better Business Bureau? I was literally just going to say that. He's going to call the BBB. Like, what is he going to do? He can't sue him. He's going to say, <sighs> I am suing him because he reneged on our contract to leave a 19-year-old girl 
alone for me, a grown married man to take care of. Yeah, a junkie. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they were right. They have the upper hand here because he keeps coming back and he doesn't care what they do. Yeah, once he's hit his five-week mark, I mean, that's kind of all he paid for. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Technically. Technically, yeah. It's like, sorry. Time's up, buddy. So, of course, Dawn doesn't take care of her festering abscess and has to be admitted into the hospital again. And they also diagnosed her now with endocarditis, which is a blood infection of the heart, which is a very common ailment of intravenous drug users, but it can be very fatal. Surprise, huh? Surprising that. Surprise. They said that her habit was like more than $300 a day. It was like, yeah, yeah. I don't even know how you're alive. So Jan did eventually confront Al about his ramblings regarding uh, cheating on her with a sex worker, but he claimed that it was pulled from a real-life patient he was treating. He said that he was treating a fellow therapist who had been treating a sex worker and that they had grown too close and seen one another outside of a clinical setting, which was unethical. So he said that was probably bothering me and I, in my breakdown, might have taken that on as my own persona. So okay. he, he did the old asking for a friend is what really happened here. Yeah. <laughs> asking for a friend post. Yes. So Don definitely did not take care of her festering groin abscess and she had to be admitted into the hospital again And at this point, they diagnosed her with endocarditis, which is a blood infection of the heart, which is a common ailment of serious intravenous drug users. And it can be very, very fatal. So she has endocarditis. She has this open infected abscess. And her chart also indicated that she had, quote, deep, foul-smelling, sinus tract-draining, purulent exudate. Jessica, say that 10 times. I don't think I said exudate or exudate correctly, but I think it's one of those. But yeah, you can imagine what they're talking about. They're talking about deep, foul-smelling, pussy snot and mucus. Yep. Which I'm like, this is who we can't keep our hands off of, who we're spending lots and lots of money on? Like, are you not seeing what you're doing to this girl? Oh, my God. So, yeah, the doctors determined that Dawn needed to stay in the hospital for a minimum of 28 days to receive serious antibiotic treatments through an IV. Yeah, for like her entire being. Yes. Yes. Everything needs to be cleaned out. Now, they knew that she was an addict, so they were giving her large doses of Demerol to make sure she didn't get sick. But this was not enough for her, and she soon convinced Alan to buy and smuggle heroin into the hospital for her, which he did. Oh, my God. Yeah. Meanwhile, now, John didn't know this at first. He had his $5,000, so he wasn't even mad that Don had to go to the hospital for a month because he's like, I got my 5 I'm good. Yeah. When Don did go in, 
he decided to get clean, though, because he thought she's in the hospital for 28 days. She's not going to have access to drugs. They're going to make sure that they give her something to take the edge off so she's not sick. This is a great time for me to get clean, too. And then we can finally start our lives again because he's a terrible person. But it did seem by some accounts that he loved her in his own sick way. And it seems like he's been wanting to try to he tries excuse to get clean. Yeah, over yeah. this 18-month period where this love triangle is going on, he is the driving force of trying to get clean at least two or three times. But when he finds out that Al is delivering drugs to her, he's pissed. And he's like, fine, screw it. Why would I get clean if she's getting heroin delivered to her in the hospital? Along with all the other shit that the hospital is giving her. her. Yeah. This is, it goes right back. We're right back at the beginning again. Nothing is getting better here. Everything is getting worse. Their lives are not improving because they now have this benefactor. It's actually making their lives materially worse. So he's pissed now at Alan for doing this. And Dawn even later told another friend of hers who is also a drug addict that she did know it was her fault for asking him and for using, but she also did not know why any so-called doctor, even a doctor of psychology, would enable her to destroy herself so much. She said to her friend, it's like he wants to watch me die or something. Yeah, it's sick. Yeah. When Dawn was released, she moved right back into the apartment with John and tensions between the trio were getting very high. John was entitled. He wanted all of Al's money, but he was also resentful of that. He was angry. He was angry about the drugs, even though he was also reliant on him for the money for his own drugs. He was always looking to prove his dominance over Al, even as Al was slightly dominant for paying for their whole life. It's crazy because if he would have gotten clean, he would have had so much more of an upper hand in the entire situation. Like any of the power that Al possesses with the financial relief that he gives them for whatever they use it for, it would have been diminished. It would have been completely on his own. Diminished because they are to the point where they need to use or they get very, very, very sick. And that being said, then you don't say no to somebody who is offering Makes you. vulnerable. Yeah, extremely. You're 100% correct there. So yeah, of course, he's feeling all of these conflicting feelings. And, you know, Al is really stressed out. He's already had one mental breakdown about this. He knows that he is draining his family finances. He knows he can't keep this up forever. He's getting to a situation where he doesn't even know why he's doing it anymore. It's just this compulsion. And Dawn is like really sick of everybody in this situation and sick of herself and just sick. I mean, think about what she's been through with the two hospital stays and physically. Yeah. Yeah. There was never any indication that she loved Al or had any feelings towards him whatsoever. And I do think that she thought she loved John. She was very reliant on him. And I think that she believed he would protect her. So that was the attraction. She had a father who had hit her and abused her and never made her feel safe or loved. And now 
there's this guy who is violent and scary, but he's her violent and scary guy. Yeah. So she was getting to the point where she told a friend, like, she loved John, but he was really getting worked up. He's getting angry about Al. He's, like, making comments all the time. He was getting hard to live with. And he was also, of course, on her about her drug use. So she's like, maybe I'll just take Al up on his offer. And maybe I will move out and let him set me up in an apartment and let him take care of me instead. But any time that like maybe would have started, it just really didn't. I don't think she had any sort of motivation really to change anything or ability to at that point because of the mess of drugs that she was on. Instead, as 1985 started, Alan paid for both John and Dawn to move into a nice new house because John was like, you know, we don't want to live in this shitty apartment anymore. Why don't you get us a nice place? And he did. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So during this time, Alan was seeing a psychiatrist named Dr. Lorraine Oz, and she had been helping him historically. Now, she's almost retiring at this point because she had helped him with a previous breakdown. He hadn't been seeing her for a while. And then when he had his latest one, he began seeing her again. And she is the only person that he told about this situation because he told her through treatment that he did want to extricate himself from it. But he needed, obviously, to talk through it with somebody. Now, Dr. Oz determined that Alan had a pathological need to be needed. This stemmed from a father that he could never satisfy and a mother who constantly treated him like a child. So he never got the respect that he felt like he deserved. And as a result, he felt like somebody needing him or his ability to give financial security or presence was what made him a big man, which made him feel like he had value. So when his pet project turned life partner surpassed him professionally, he went to seek out somebody who could satisfy his intellectual curiosity while also possessing no ability to ever surpass him or outgrow her need for him, which would make sense why he continues to enable her drug use because as long, like you pointed out, as long as she is hooked on drugs, she will be hooked on him. Yeah, but it's so horrible that him with the resources and the knowledge and the wherewithal of his psychological ineptitude to get past it is gonna kill her it is and he doesn't yeah care like he cannot that's that's so sad in any good faith say that he actually loves this young woman and it's also very it's the whole time I was reading masquerade Um, So I read Masquerade first, and then I read Jan's incredible book, which we'll talk more about at the end of this episode. I was thinking, what is he doing? Like, why? Why is he doing this? Does he have feelings for Dawn? If he did, he would want to help her. And then it gets to this point in this very brief section, which is pretty deep in this very long book. This book's like 500 pages. And it finally kind of describes maybe what his psychological motivations were. And Jan goes even deeper in her book about what she believes his motivations were. But the things he told Dr. Oz were extremely disconcerting from like what you were saying, if he cares about these people, he should want to help them. So he said the following to his psychiatrist. 
he said that he rationalized that their lifestyle was a chance to satisfy his scientific curiosity. He reported their binges in great detail, adding he'd more than once had to rebuff their efforts to persuade him to join them. He realized his financial support alone wasn't enough for the couple's insatiable appetite for narcotics. He detailed their other illegal activities from kiting bad checks to furnishing their new house with stolen goods. They repeatedly amaze me, Al said. These people are thoroughly rotten through and through. I mean, nothing they do is good. And you, sir? Yeah. Al chronicled Dawn's physical deterioration and was amazed that her heroin use in hospitals went undetected by medical staff. The heroin you provided, sir. He was astonished that John thought that his sex worker girlfriend had some kind of sexual hold on Al. The pimp usually leaving them alone when he visited, Al said that he had no desire to have intercourse with Dawn. For months, Dr. Oz had been hammering away at her patient's resilient delusion of invulnerability, but often the psychiatrist found it difficult to get him to focus when he found so many aspects of this scenario entertaining. He was entertained by this situation. So fucked up. It's very fucked up. Al was amused by the game of deception that Dawn and her pimp had played for many months. He was intrigued by the plethora of hard luck stories she had created early on for money. He played along, knowing it all went to drugs. He found laughable John's attempts to disguise the fact he lived with Dawn while leaving hints of his presence throughout the house. He chuckled at Dawn's excuses for the days her car was gone. Many times he'd seen the car leaving with John planted behind the wheel. By April, however, Al was disgusted with the entire situation and even more disgusted with himself. Which he should be. Finally. Yeah, these people are not guinea pigs. They're human beings. <sighs> so it's clear that Alan still thought that he held all of the cards in this situation. But he did not by a long shot. While Alan was working on ways to break off the relationship, he was saying that he was going to get... Dawn clean. So he's running out of money. So he's, first of all, starting to withdraw his financial support. And he also did get her into a methadone clinic. So he's now telling the psychiatrist, as soon as she is clean, he's going to leave and put this whole thing in the rear view mirror. But John is now very angry. He's continuing to be angry. He was mad when the money was coming in. Now it's summer of 1985 and the money's starting to stop coming in. And he's like, what the hell, man? So he starts telling people like their neighbors. He told his, he calls her like Aunt Dot, but it's like a family friend. It's like a second mother to him. He tells her that he is going to kill the doc. So he's telling now multiple people that if he doesn't give him at least one big last payday, that he's going to just murder the guy. So on July 13th, 1985, Alan went to work as always. At lunch, he visited Dawn and only gave her $40, much less than the couple had become accustomed to. At 3.30 p.m., he told Jan his last session ended at 6 p.m. and that he was going to swing by the grocery store on his way home and get some coffee. They also discussed having hamburgers for dinner that night. So it's just a totally normal conversation that you have with your spouse a million times a day. Alan's last patient reported several phone calls interrupting the session and that Alan was getting increasingly disturbed and frustrated by the ringing phone. He went directly to John and Don's house after his last patient. 
And when it appears that he told them he wasn't going to give them any more money, at that point, it seems that they forced him to sell his gold watch because a neighborhood teenager was on the street and they said that the doc was in his black Buick with John Fry in the front seat and Don in the back seat. And John asked him if he wanted to buy the gold watch for $25. And the kid said, yeah. So he ran into his house to get the money. And when he came back out, they had switched spots. I mean, this is metaphorical. John Fry was now in the driver's seat. Yeah. And literal. So he's in the driver's seat. They sell this gold watch for $25. And then it appears that they got cocaine, which they were not snorting. They were shooting up. So... At this point, they go back home. They're in the bedroom, all three of them. Lowell Caulfield did not mention this, but I read another account that said that John had sex with Dawn in front of Al, but then she got sick from shooting up the cocaine. And so she ran at that point to the bathroom and she was getting ill in the bathroom. And when she emerged from the bathroom, she heard John and Al yelling at one another. Now, she had never heard Al yell at John before. So this was okay. very against their usual arrangement. And we're still not sure where this fight originated from. I read some sources that cited that John was trying to hit him up for another big payday. And he was saying no. But John would later say that... He wanted Al to stop giving Dawn money for drugs so that she could get clean. So we don't know exactly. He said, he said over here. But we do know that Al became very angry and he shouted at John, it's my money. I can give it and I can take it. I can do whatever I want to do. And if you don't like it, fuck you. I don't have to justify anything I do to you. At that point, he tried to leave the bedroom, but John blocked the door. And when he did this, Al pushed John with one hand just to get him to move out of the way. But it just so happened that there was a stool behind John. So when he gave him this pretty gentle push, he tripped and fell like ass over tea kettle. He fell on his ass and it flipped a switch. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Full. His humility, too. Yeah, he's humiliated now, and he has this dominance thing, and that this guy pushed him over in his own house, even though Al pays the bills. And when he stood up again, he was beat red in the face, full of anger, and he was holding a Louisville slugger. This is where the violence begins. So he began to beat Alan to bloody bits, striking him as hard as he could in the head and the face, and they believe only four blows. Dawn ran from the house. She ran outside because she was terrified right now. So she went outside, and Alan collapsed. Pieces of his brain were showing where the skull had given way, and apparently it took him several minutes to die on the bedroom floor of that house while he was shaking and convulsing. I can't even imagine what those last few terror. minutes. Terror. Just terror. Terror. Yeah. Oh, 
God. Yeah. And he made some terrible mistakes, but no one deserves this. I mean, we say it all of the time. No one deserves to be killed and nobody deserves to die in such a brutal fashion. Especially when he has someone at home who loves him and would have been by his side. Yeah. Loves him and would have supported him through this if he had been able to be honest with her about what situation he had gotten himself into. She wouldn't have left him. She would have been like, oh, thank God I found out what was going on because you've been so weird. And now we can get back to the road of recovery, hopefully. But now there's no time for second chances. When it was over, Don tried to see if Alan was still alive because he had given her a stethoscope so that she could like listen to her own heart when she was worried about drug-based arrhythmias and stuff like that. So she had a stethoscope and she tried to find a heartbeat. Meanwhile, John was screaming, get up, motherfucker. You get up. You get up right now. And he's dead. Obviously dead. Obviously, yeah. You killed him. You animal, you know? So this is just a mess all around. At that point, he was angry with Don. He's angry with everyone. John's just an angry man. So he tells Don to go turn tricks. He said, go make some money. Go outside. And he ended up doing a little bit more of the cocaine. And then he pulled Al's body into the bathtub and he slit his throat to essentially drain his body. So while Al was being drained of blood, he went back out into the streets and he scored a speedball, took the speedball, came back, and he began dismembering Al using a Ginsu knife. Now, I don't usually, like, get into, like, dismemberment stuff or, like, gory details, but the way Lowell Caulfield wrote about this moment and the visual of these two men together in this moment was so powerful to me that I really feel like I want to read to you guys a little bit about this dismemberment. So if that really grosses you out, I know it's a true crime podcast, so you're here for it mostly. But if that grosses you out, just skip ahead a little bit, maybe like a minute or two, because we're going to get into that. So the first thing he did was take all of John's clothes off. And then he didn't want to get stains on his own clothes. So he stripped all of his clothes off. So he stepped into the bathtub stark naked, placing one knee on each side of Al's body. His own skin met the corpse's flesh as he went about the task. This moment of both of them stripped bare, one dead, one having done the act that extinguished his life after 18 months of this power struggle, to me is so desperately sad and profound. So some people say that Dawn was there. Dawn says she wasn't. John later said that she was, that she was sitting on the toilet for this part and helping him. She would later say she was not. And it was about 1030 when he began in earnest. He first took off the head, followed by the hands, cutting them just above the wrist. He cut off a foot, applying the Ginsu just above the ankle. The severance was so precise, a medical examiner later would fit the two pieces back together like a puzzle. Whoa. He was surprised by his fast progress. He would later say, it was easier than you might think. Wow. The head, hands, and feet were wrapped in newspaper, which was then folded with the kind of sharp creases found in a butcher shop. These packages were placed separately in four green plastic garbage bags, the head and the feet in separate bags, 
and the hands put together in one. And then he placed them all in a brown overnight bag that Al had bought for Dawn for her hospital stays and put that brown bag in their refrigerator. So that same night, Jan Canty put out the hamburgers with slices of tomato and onion to be ready to go on the grill as soon as her husband came home. It was very stormy outside. So she turned on the TV to distract herself and she became completely enraptured with watching the three-hour special huge concert event Live Aid. Do you remember Live Aid? Yeah. I mean, I don't think we were you were barely alive for it you were like a couple no but i remember didn't we watch it at thanksgiving one yeah year? okay so guys when i'm drunk i make everyone watch the youtube video of freddie mercury and queen performing at live aid because i think it is the single greatest musical performance in the history of musical performances <laughs> I'm kind of still shocked you didn't name one of your children, Freddie Mercury. <laughs> I know. Nathaniel and I share this perspective, so we're both crazy about it. Yeah, so I, even though we were mere babies, know a lot about Live Aid. Yes. <laughs> which was a gigantic hit that brought in 1.9 billion live viewers, which was 40% of the world's population at the time. Yeah, which is crazy. It featured Sting, Led Zeppelin, U2, obviously Queen. So she, just like me, was fully pulled into this crazy experience and watching the concert. So she didn't even realize for a very long time that Al hadn't come home. I can't believe it was the same night. Yeah, it was the same night. So it was 1030 when the concert was over. She turned off the TV and she was like, holy shit, he was supposed to be home three hours ago or more. What the hell is going on? So she called his office first. And the person that was working at the security desk said that he had signed out at 6.30 p.m. So she calls the police. Now, there's nothing they can do at that point because he's a grown man and it's not yet a missing person situation. But they did go to the Kroger grocery store to check the parking lot for her because she said that that's where he was supposed to be going after work. And they also checked to see if there was any incident reports, like a car accident, like she gave them the Buick's license plate number and there had been no accidents reported with that car. She called the hospitals. He wasn't in any of the hospitals. So she's getting really, really concerned and freaked out at this point. She is in a full-blown panic. She ends up waking up a neighbor because she can't even drive. She is just so anxious. And the neighbor took her to his office. And so they go in and everything's normal. He's not like she was terrified she was going to find him dead in his office. Of course. Yeah. And he's not there. There's no signs of foul play at all. So she has no idea what to do. She obviously can't sleep. The next early, early morning, she called Gladys. And this began Al's mother's hell as well. This is her only child. Her husband is predeceased. So now she's panicked as well. Meanwhile, at midnight across town, John and Don were trying to clean and bleach the apartment the best they could. So John did, he ends up leaving Al's body parts in some dumpsters In Detroit, he's also throwing away his belongings and getting rid of any trace of Al in the house. 
they end up driving up north after this and he also leaves some body parts like alongside the highway while they're driving up north but at this time what's going on is he's telling Dawn to clean everything up pack all their belongings they're gonna get the hell out of Dodge they're driving up to Frank McMaster's and Cheryl's house so she's trying to do all of this at the same time he's getting rid of some stuff around town he picks her up he tells her to bring the brown bag of Al's most identifying characteristics obviously his hands and his head are in that bag to the car, which she does. So she carries the bag from the refrigerator out to the car. They hit the road. So they get up to where Cheryl and Frank McMasters are living. And Cheryl is now six months pregnant. She thought that she had gotten out of this madness. And now they're showing up at her house like she needs this shit in her life. And Frank has always been kind of amused by John. John has always been this big cocky guy that talks a big game. So when he first says, like, I got some shit I got to get rid of, you have to take me out to some really desolate location because I could get in big trouble if some of this stuff comes to light. He thinks it's just some stuff he stole. He thinks, oh, man, these junkies got themselves into some bad situations. I've seen it before. I'll see it again. Like, he does not think at that point that it's body parts, of course. So... He knows they're driving the Doc's car, though. See, everybody knew that this was a fancy, late model, nice Buick. So he knows that they're driving the car. He doesn't know where the Doc is because he knew of him. And he said something along the lines of, like, I killed a guy last night. And Frank thought he was just fucking bullshitting. He's like, yeah, okay, John. Yep, you say shit like that all the time. All right, you killed a man. Mm -hmm, Sure. And then they get to this place. It's like, it's basically a University of Michigan biological station off of like a logging road. So it's the middle of nowhere. The black flies are thick. The guys are getting bit up. They're getting eaten alive right now. It's sweaty. It's hot. It's July. And they find this one like really deep hole. And at that point, John drops the brown bag into the hole and he says, Bye, Al. And that's when it clicks for Frank that he actually killed Doc. Yeah. Yeah. And so on the way back, Frank McMasters is freaking out a little bit because he's like, my fingerprints are all over the Buick. They're staying at our house. I'm the one who told him where to dispose of this body. I am so well and thoroughly screwed in this situation if they get caught. So instead, unfortunately, of going to the police and saying, I accidentally helped somebody dispose of a body, he doubled down and said, okay, we got to burn the Buick. I'm going to like basically help you guys get away with this. What happens if you go to the cops and you say, I accidentally like this happened? I mean, I think they can still charge you with accessory, but I feel like there's got to be some leniency if you come right away and you say you were basically tricked into it, right? Yep. I would be very upset if it wasn't because you'd obviously want to enable someone to go report that. Well, I'm sure what they would do is use it to get the person to testify. Say if he was like scared and he didn't want to testify against John, they'd be like, well, we're going to charge you with accessory unless you testify against him. And then he'd go, okay. (laughs) So now they have like burned out the Buick at this point. Meanwhile, Gladys Canty used her connections with the police because obviously her late husband was the big forensic psychiatrist who worked with the police. 
to urge the authorities to begin a very serious investigation. So now there's it's in the media. It's in the newspapers that a prominent psychologist is missing. People were connecting him to Jimmy Hoffa. I, I guess that like his father did some work with like the mob. And so they were like kind of confusing the two Dr. Alan Canties and saying like maybe it's his mob connections that got him disappeared. So it's in the media now. They're really like looking for him. So somebody in Vice got a tip that he was well known in the cast corridor as the doc and that he was hanging out with these people. And eventually one of the informants was able to say exactly that it was Don Spens and John Fry and even could tell the police where they lived. One investigator said, I couldn't help but get the feeling that many of the people in the cast corridor and the peers of Don and John actually liked the guy that they called the doc. He was a symbol of prestige to a lot of them. And some of them felt John and Don had abused his generosity. So soon those same people and John's family friend Dot reported that John had been threatening to kill the doc. So they know that there are known associates. They also know there had been some threats of violence. So they gained entrance to the home that Al had rented for this gruesome twosome. And they found a trove of physical evidence. For some speedball reason, Don and John hadn't done a great job cleaning the scene. So there was blood, there was hair, there was a like a writing pad with Alan's full name and office address on it. There was also, of course, a lot of drug paraphernalia. So there was little doubt at this point now that Al had been murdered and very little doubt as to who was responsible. So all they needed to do now was find John and Don. Well, John decided to make that extremely easy for the police by calling Dot and saying that he was going to come kill her to keep her quiet about the murder. So Dot ran to her sister's house and called a friend of hers who was a police officer. And then that officer reported it to the greater authorities and said that they should basically just go to Dot's house and hang out and wait for John and Don to show up, which is exactly where those dumbasses were apprehended. Unreal. So obviously Don and John, I'm sure, Don was suffering from withdrawal symptoms and she eventually just cracked and confessed everything to the police. Ugh. So she said that Frank McMasters knew where the body parts were. So at that point, they could go apprehend him. And they worked out a deal with him. I know we were talking about deals earlier, where essentially if he was able to lead them to Al's remains, then he could potentially avoid prosecution by also finding the remains and testifying against John and Don at trial, which he agreed to. Okay. So they're out there in the woods trying to find all of the parts of Al. And the two villains are locked away. They got court-appointed defense attorneys. And at this point, Gladys and Jan were given the horrific news that, of course, Al had been found, but not in the way that they had hoped. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And this was very, very traumatic. I mean, for Gladys, I can only imagine as a mother, but 
Jan wrote about her experience. So you almost don't have to imagine it. If you read her book, A Life Divided, she goes into great detail about how horrific this period of her life was and how it was essentially like a living death by a million cuts over the next few months, especially. She not only discovered the staggering depth of her husband's lies and duplicity, but she found out that they were in financial dire straits beyond what she could have had any idea about. Al had spent over $140,000 on Dawn in 18 months, which is about 400 grand in today's money. In only that short amount of time. I mean, the thing about this case that's so sick is that nobody's right, nobody's wrong, or maybe everyone's wrong, probably. I mean, other than Jan. And everyone was using each other because they sucked him dry. But we also pointed out all the ways that he was enabling Dawn's drug use for his own end. So she finds out that they're completely broke. They're in a tremendous amount of debt. Al had zero life insurance. The media would not stop hounding her. And the worst moment came when... She had to identify Al's decapitated head in the morgue. What? Yeah. And I definitely, so guys, exciting news. Andy and I will actually be interviewing Dr. Jan Canty later today. So it'll be coming out tomorrow. We'll talk about that at the end of the episode. But it's definitely something I want to talk about with her because she talks about this moment on episode 192 of the podcast Corner Talk which is a show that instructs coroners and other law enforcement officials on how to speak to homicide survivors. And she also talks about it in her book, just the horror of this moment because he had been in that bog in July for a week by the time they recovered his body parts. And he also had been massively beaten and disfigured before that occurred. So you can imagine that this person does not look like her husband. And even if he did, we're still talking about a disembodied head. Yeah, it's probably he barely even looks like a person at this point. No, the way she described it was that it was grisly, otherworldly, and There's no other word for it but traumatic. She said the smell in the room was like kitty litter, rotten eggs, and old styrofoam meat trays. Ooh. Tinged with disinfectant. Yeah, so she was with her dad, thank goodness, and one of the investigators who held her up, one of the female investigators. And after that, so she gets through this, and she was forced to endure invasive and humiliating STD tests, including HIV, which was still considered a death sentence in 1985. So luckily for Jan, although there's no luckily in any of this, the couple's sex life had faltered over the last 18 months. She had just chalked it up to the fact that he was getting older. Things happen, and they're busy. And then, of course, he had the psychiatric breakdown. But in the end, because of that, she was spared something that could have been a lifelong health situation because he put her in that situation. 
Yeah, and because the story was such front page news, there was nowhere in Detroit that Jan could go without being recognized or hounded. She couldn't do the simplest task. They were aggressive at his funeral. She was just trying to lay her husband to a rest. And the funeral director let the news reporters and TV cameras into the funeral home. He should be fined for that. Absolutely. I mean, it was just gross what happened to Jan. She ended up having to sell the house and move out of Detroit to start a new life because there was just no way forward for her at all. So it was a terrible, terrible time. I mean, she's having to do all of this on a public stage when she never, ever asked for this. Like, she turned down Oprah. She turned down multiple huge talk shows at the time because she didn't want the attention. She just wanted to be able to move. And she also was dealing with these insane financial repercussions. Like, she wasn't even having the time to get to mourn her husband's loss because she was fending off the media and trying to figure out how she was going to get out of trouble with the IRS. So Dawn cleaned up in jail and she tried to get her confession tossed to benefit her lover, John Lucky Fry. That failed. They said, absolutely not. There's no reason for us to toss this confession because she was completely made aware of her rights during that moment. And now you could argue that she was dope sick, but still, yeah, she knew what she was doing. And then she wrote quite a few love letters to her pimp while they awaited trial. And they're just kind of gross. They're like, it's just, it's kind of incomprehensible. It's just, it defies reason because they're in this situation and she's telling him how, how he's such a great man, how she loves him so much and how she knows now that he'll do anything for her and protect her and how when when all of this is over, she wants to get married and have babies with him. It's just delusional, bizarre, completely tone deaf. Well, John must have decided that his best shot at getting that future with Dawn was to break out of prison because on September 9th, 1985, he bribed a guard to smuggle a pistol and a couple of hacksaw blades into his cell. What? Yeah, I guess he arranged this through some female connection who brokered this deal, but I cannot believe that that prison guard did that. So that Monday, John and two other inmates forced two other prison guards into a cell and stripped them of their uniforms. The two accomplices put on those uniforms and looked for a way out while John waited on the fifth floor catwalk with the pistol for some sort of signal that they had found a way out. So they had no idea what they were doing, clearly. They ended up all caught, and there was a four-hour standoff before John surrendered to the Detroit PD. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, Hella drama. John chose to have a trial with a jury of his peers, while Dawn chose to have a bench trial for her lesser charges of abusing a corpse and facilitating a murder after the fact. So John's trial kicked off in early December. Frank McMaster's Cheryl, who is now a new mother, and his aunt Dot all testified against him, as well as other neighbors and law enforcement. Yep, everybody did. Actually, everyone except for Don testified against him. So there was little that John's defense attorney could do other than attempt to give a reason behind his client's outrage and also prove that the murder was not actually first degree because it was not premeditated. And I do have to say this defense attorney's closing argument was pretty compelling. This is what he said. 
by the way, his name was Jay Nolan. So defense attorney Jay Nolan said, there is not a person in this courtroom who is not in sympathy with Dr. Canty and what happened to him. He certainly did not deserve to die and did not deserve this type of burial. And we grieve for his family. We all do. Then Nolan himself portrayed the psychologist as a modern day Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He wrote a book on therapeutic peers, which means your equals, he said at one point. He comes in from Gross Point and he descends to these wretched people and becomes a part of their lives. I suggest he was playing with them as a guinea pig. He is a trained psychologist and he has control. Building resentments caused John Fry's hot blood that led to the killing, Nolan argued. I don't think John Fry realized when he was on the witness stand today what was being done to him by the skillful doctor of psychology. I don't think John Fry realizes that he was being manipulated. Dr. Jekyll knew what he was doing. He was manipulating these people. John Fry was not his peer. Don Spence, not his peer. Frank McMasters is not his peer. He went on for a minute naming every Southside witness with the same phrase. It was a rousing argument with a rousing climax. So Dr. Canty raises to full height and he says, I don't have to justify anything. He pushed him aside and dismissed him as if he was not human. Finally, here is the end. He has treated these people as toys and twisted and twisted and twisted that spring. And the twisted spring finally broke. It broke Fry. This is the type of situation which is manslaughter. And I ask you to return a verdict of manslaughter and guilty of dissecting a human body. Which, I mean, raises some interesting points. Yeah. I mean, we never victim blame purposely, but there was an imbalance in this relationship. For sure. And the defense attorney did bring into question that maybe, you know, he's saying you obviously are not going to relate to John Fry. You're not going to put yourself in his position and say, yes, I see myself as that person because no one wants to be like this guy. He's like we've talked about altogether terrible, like checks every box of disgusting and and terrible and mean-spirited and horrible and abusive. So they're not going to see himself like that. They're themselves like that. But maybe they can understand why he cracked. Well, and he's instilling uncertainty into the entire jury about the victim as well and about the dynamic. Which we've talked about a lot on the show is that, you know, it's a common tactic. It's kind of a gross tactic for the most part to put the victim on trial as well. In this case, though, I think it was a good play. However, it did not work out. <laughs> it did not work out even a little bit, despite this rousing closing argument. After less than three hours of deliberation, the jury found John Carl Fry guilty of first-degree murder. And apparently, John Fry did not even blink. He didn't react at all. He got fried. He got fried. So John was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Almost concurrently, Dawn's bench trial began. Her attorney argued that she did not kill Alan. She wasn't present for the dismemberment, or so she says. And that the only thing that she did that anyone could prove was that she carried that one bag from the refrigerator out to the car because somebody saw her carrying it. But she argued that she did not know what was in the bag. She was just following John's instructions to grab that bag and bring it to the car. So on December 17th, 1985, Judge Sapala found Dawn guilty of being an accessory to murder after the fact, but not guilty of mutilating a dead body. 
the judge declared that he found 20-year-old Dawn to be a, quote, retrievable person and sentenced her to 10 months in jail with three years probation. So with time served, that ended up being around five months. And then she walked out in March of 1986 to go to a drug rehab program, which was court ordered. Okay. She was 21 years old. And she now, for the first time, it seemed, had her life in front of her. Unlike the sugar daddy that she had helped put in the ground. So according to Jan's book, however, Dawn was able to turn around her life. She really did get clean. She went to college and used that bright, beautiful brain that everybody knew she had. She ended up getting a degree in accounting. She went on to work for, I guess, one of the major car manufacturers. And Jan reported that she was married twice. She's had children. From what I understand, she's still married to her second husband. She is living a completely solid, respectable ordinary civilian life there. So I'm sure that she is haunted by these events. Has to be. Yeah. I don't know how you would not be. So I don't think, I don't think we can be that hard on her. I I don't know. I mean, we can, (laughs) we can always be hard on murderers or people who help murderers, but I do think that she's young and she was obviously on a lot of drugs and there were too much older men in this situation that were manipulating her life. Absolutely. So I think that it's a really great thing that she managed to turn her life around, and I do hope she's doing well. So John Fry tried unsuccessfully to appeal for a few years, and then he died in prison on September 15th, 1995, at the age of 49 years old, due to hepatitis C. Detective Doug Topolsky said that he was paroled to the afterlife. Indeed. Indeed he was. Dr. Jan Canty spent many years rebuilding herself and coming to terms with her husband's shocking double life and homicide. And man, though, Andy, I am telling you, she has lived such an incredible life since She taught psychology at undergrad and grad levels. She wrote a children's book. She helped build a school in Kenya. She worked in a medical clinic in rural India. All the while, she was like honing her gifts for writing and photography. She takes these beautiful photographs that she includes in her book. And she has become an incredible advocate for homicide survivors. So number one, she has a podcast where she interviews other survivors called The Domino Effect of Murder, but she also teaches seminars to homicide detectives and coroners and crime scene analysts to help them realize the importance in other people's lives that they have in delivering this news and how they can best support survivors. That's amazing. It's incredible. I can't wait. I'm we're definitely going to ask her a bunch of questions about her work when we get the chance to interview her later. So also in her 40s, she decided to become a parent and found herself uniquely capable of becoming the mother to two very small girls whose biological mother had been murdered. And so their biological father was incarcerated of a totally different charge at the time. And unfortunately, their murderer was never caught. Oh, God. So they didn't have the same justice, although justice is a slippery thing. 
But she wrote in her book, A Life Divided, my new role as mother gave me purpose. Not the same as the me before, but I wouldn't want that. The three of us proved life goes on after a tragedy. A lesson I imparted upon my daughters was how to survive a murder. At this point, they are now beautiful young women, and I have been promoted to grandmother status. Oh, so cute. (laughs) I know. I love her. Jan also found love again, remarrying a wonderful man who is a retired Army lieutenant colonel. He adopted Jan's daughters, and they weathered the teenage years together, and they now live on a farm with St. Bernard's. And she said, I finally found my safe place to land. This modest, reliable man shares my love of dogs and exudes a steadiness that grounds me. And I totally cried when she closed her book with the peace that she has discovered. And she tells her readers that, quote, life is an adventure. I hope yours is an astonishing one. Cute. I know. It's so amazing. I definitely was like (laughs) crying ugly tears, like finishing my research. Oh, man. Um, But yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that Jan shared her story. I think it's so important to hear directly from survivors of homicide and to also understand her perspective and her activism now. But also it just, it really helped bring this very dark, tragic story to a nice ending. And I know that that's not possible truly for everybody who lived through this, but like to have her come out of that with what she learned and how she's helping other people, I do think that's a silver lining. Of course. Yes, so definitely, guys, please, please, please tune in tomorrow uh, for the interview with Dr. Jan Canty. And in conclusion, let your partner in on your inner life and struggles because they may be able to work with you. I wholeheartedly believe that if Al could have been honest with Jan, that they could have worked through what he was going through and who he was and how he was struggling. And she would have never had to experience being blindsided like that. Seriously, it would have been a totally different story. I would just like to say that I think everyone should be a little bit more like Jan. Yeah. What would Jan do? What would Jan do? So, as always... Trust your gut when it comes to love. Rebuild your life. Adopt some babies and help others so more people end up saved and supported. We love all of you guys. Check you back tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Bye.